Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Hey, I... uh, Thanks, 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 thanks. So now if you don't clap at the end, I'm going to think like, oh, that was terrible. So way to go. Um, did, he, did Brian talk about the Falcons again? <laughs> I, got, I got to be honest. I love Brian. I love Centerpoint. But enough is enough at some point. Like enough suffering is enough. Although you're Bucks fans. You've suffered more than we have. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hey, go Bucks, though. I mean, opening night, I got to give it to you. It was a great game. I, I'm 47. And um, I think that gives me an incredible respect for Tom Brady. Because he's not really younger than me. At 47, he's 44 or whatever. And watching a guy like, I, I don't know, man. It's like, I'm sure he has sold his soul to something somehow along the way. But whatever. Like, he, if he wins, we'll, we'll, it's okay, you know? So, um, uh, this, we're not talking about football, but it is football season, right? Some of you are like, can we stop with the football? So, just really quick. I do think it's going to be fun when, the Tampa, when Tampa plays Atlanta. Because I think Atlanta might have a historically bad defense this year. So, don't, yeah, no. <laughs> You're welcome to leave. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, so it's going to be rough. It's going to be real rough, but I'm excited to watch it. And I got to be honest. I told Brian, we talk a lot. I told him, I said, it's weird how you begin to foster. This is a whole sermon. We won't do it. But you begin to foster relationships with people and the things around them, you start to see it differently. I used to hate Tampa Bay. And now I'm really good friends with Brian, and I love Centerpoint. And now when Tampa Bay plays, I find myself cheering for him. And halfway through the game, I'm like, what am I doing? You know? Have you ever thought, have you ever noticed that before? Like you have an opinion about something? This is not my sermon. You have an opinion about something, and then you meet somebody who's on the other side of that opinion, and all of a sudden you become friends with them, and your opinions start to shift just because of a relationship. Isn't that weird? That's a whole series, Brian. Okay. Um, so... So you guys are starting a series next week. I love the idea of counterculture. Um, this isn't the beginning of the series, but in a way, what we're talking about today is the beginning of that series. It's a very kind of cultural conversation we're going to have. Um, and if, if you're a, a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Like, that you, in fact, you're curious, that you're listening, watching online, whatever you're doing. Like, I'm so glad that you're curious, and I'm, and I'm really glad that you're going to hear this conversation. I think it might give you something to think about um, that might even be a better alternative to what you see in culture. If you are a Jesus follower, um, you know, we don't put seatbelts here on the chairs, but you might want to buckle up for a minute because what we're going to talk about as a Jesus follower has significant implications for how we live day to day while we're here on this planet as we're trying to follow Jesus. So thanks for not leaving because I told you that. It's going to be a big deal, I think, though, if we could begin to think through how to live this out. Um, Of course, we're going to get there by talking about a story that that happened with Jesus. You know, everything that happens with Jesus is significant. Like, all the stories he's involved in have incredible principled life kind of principles and and, and things for us to to learn from, to implement in our own life. Um, This is one of those stories. It happened, of course, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was roaming the planet. Um, He had some really good friends. You know, you've probably heard of the 12 disciples. They're the guys who were following him around during his ministry season, but he had other friends as well. Um, Some of the the friends um, are pretty well known. Um, One of them is a guy 
guy named Lazarus. Lazarus was like one of his best buddies. Lazarus is a really big deal in the Bible because he died. Jesus hung out for two or three days knowing that he was dying. Let him die. I mean, what a good friend Jesus is. Comes back to his home, asks to roll the tomb away, the the stone away, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. In fact, it was the the last thing he really did that got everybody riled up is what got him crucified eventually. But come on, if you're raising people from the dead, you're going to draw a lot of attention. And the religious leaders didn't like the attention he was getting. So Lazarus is a really big deal. I don't know if you know this, but Lazarus had two sisters. They were also very good friends with Jesus. Their names were Mary and Martha. So what we're going to do today is look at a story between Jesus and Mary and Martha. And there is an incredible but kind of subtle principle in the story that I think is very culturally relevant for what we are experiencing today. So let me kind of read how this story starts. Um, this is in the book of Luke. You can just follow on the screen if you don't have a Bible or a phone or something like that. Okay, so book of Luke, chapter 10, 38, verse 38. Here's what it says. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So Martha, Mary, they have a house, right? Lazarus is there too. He lives there. Jesus is going through the village. He comes to their home. He kind of hangs out with them. He kind of enters the house. He's going to hang out for a while. So she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So quick kind of set the scene for you. Jesus is chilling in a lazy boy, regaling Mary with stories, you know, you know, hey, have you heard about the 5,000 that I fed? I mean, he's doing all that, you know, with Mary. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to all the things that he has to share, the wisdom, the stories, right? Meanwhile, her sister Martha is working. Now, it's easy to kind of say, oh yeah, well, Mary was doing something great, but hospitality is a really big deal in Jewish culture. 2,000 years ago, if someone comes into your house and you're not working to prepare a place for them to stay, for them to eat, I mean, that's like super sinful in a way. So, so in, a, in, a, in a real way, Martha is doing exactly what she should be doing. She's working to prepare a meal. She's working to make sure Jesus is comfortable. And by the way, he's not just some random traveler coming through, right? It's Jesus, And Mary and Martha know he's a big deal. They suspect he might even be the Messiah. They're not sure. But they know he's a really, really big deal. And that he's probably from God. So of course she's working. Of course she's trying to be hospitable. It's Jesus, one of their good friends, and probably from God. So of course she's frustrated by this, right? I mean, she's frustrated that her sister is doing nothing to help. Meanwhile, she's doing all the hard work. So as you would do if you were frustrated like Martha, she comes to Jesus to complain, right? So she came to him, to Jesus, and she's asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. It's like, Dad, like, don't you see I'm doing all the work and my sister is so lazy, she's doing nothing? Like, can't you get on to her? Can you put her in timeout, like Jesus timeout? Like, what can you do? Can you do something? So Jesus responds, and of course he has to respond to this, right? He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord said, you do you, boo, and let's let Mary follow her heart too. No, I was kidding, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus, he did not say that. But just for a second, right, just, just for a second, we'll get back to the story in a minute, but just for a second. Like, if Jesus were here today, if Jesus were here today, and this same story was playing out, and he said that, Wouldn't you kind of be like, yeah, Jesus is kind of cool. He's kind of hip. Like he's down with the times. 
Because isn't that true? Like, don't we live in a world right now that is so much a, a you do you boo, as long as it doesn't hurt me, as long as it is good for you. And, and, and the reason we do that, and, and there's some good things behind it. I, I think the number one reason we do it is because we're on a happiness quest. We're, we're all just on a happiness quest. We're trying to figure out how to be happy. And this you do you mindset is like the fastest way we think to find happiness. It goes by lots of different terms, kind of this happiness quest, this path, like you do you, obviously, is one. Um, you be you, maybe you've heard that. Uh, be true to yourself. Be, be true to yourself. Be true to you. Follow your heart, because that's never led to a problem, you know? <laughs> Find yourself. Look inward. Reflect on who you are. Learn more about you, so that way you can live your truth. You've heard that before. I mean, in a way, when you think about it, like, we, we really are kind of living in this, like, self-expressive, learn about yourself so that you can discover happiness world. And it actually seems to make a lot of sense. It seems to make a ton of sense. The more you learn about you, the more you're able to live as your full, authentic self. Of course, that's going to lead to more happiness. So we end up on this pursuit of happiness through self-discovery. Psychologists have actually given this self-discovery world that we have found ourselves in a name. They, they call it expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase before. Expressive individualism, here's the definition, right? It, it's this be true to yourself mindset that finds self-fulfillment and expression as the highest goal in life. That's what expressive individualism is. It, it, it's your, your greatest purpose, your greatest goal in life is to reflect inwardly, follow your heart, be true to yourself, and you're going to find self-fulfillment through that self-expression. Again, on the surface, it makes a lot of sense. If you go to a bookstore, you see it everywhere in self-help books. It's in podcasts, it's in TV shows, it's in movies. I mean, everywhere we turn in culture, this be true to you thought is pervasive. It's everywhere. When you start reading books that has this in it and you come across these kind of chapters, these sections, it really starts to make a lot of sense. There's a guy named Robert Bella. He wrote a book, Habits of the Heart. Can I just read you a very short paragraph from it? And it's all about expressive individualism. And when you hear the paragraph, I think, like me, you're going to hear it and think, well, that actually sounds kind of great. Here's what Robert wrote. As people, we believe in the dignity, which we believe in dignity, right? We believe in the dignity, indeed the sacredness of the individual. Anything that would violate our right to think for ourselves or judge for ourselves, make our own decisions, live our lives as we see fit, is not only morally wrong, it's sacrilegious. Our highest and noblest aspirations, not only for ourselves, but for those we care about, for our society and for the world, are closely linked to individualism. Doesn't that sound pretty legit? I mean, think about it. I value dignity of people. I value my dignity. It makes perfect sense that if we could think for ourselves, judge for ourselves. I mean, how many times have we heard Christians are hypocritical, we should stop, stop judging everybody? That's what this sounds like. Just judge yourself. Don't judge others. Let them, let them be them. Make your own decisions Live our lives as we see fit. I mean, as long as you're not hurting somebody else. And the more you kind of dig into this, the more it starts to make sense. And it begins to even have a little bit of a religious flair to it. I mean, think about this. Like if the first and greatest commandment 
If the first and greatest commandment of individualism is to be yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be dishonest of self by giving in to external pressure or authority. Let me think about it. I'm going to read it again. If the first and greatest commandment of individualism is to be yourself, you do you, boo. If that's the greatest commandment, then the unforgivable sin is to be dishonest of yourself by giving into external pressure or authority. Again, it makes a lot of sense. But what we might not kind of at least recognize on the surface is even though that thought makes a lot of sense and it feels logical to a certain extent, it actually leads people down a path. Now, I don't know if you've ever, you know, been in the ocean, I'm sure you have, where there's a current, you know, maybe if you have kids and you, they're in the ocean and there's like a current and you always tell them, you're like, look up every once in a while and see where you are because I don't want you to end up in Cuba, you know, like... The current moves you down. You've done this, right? You're out boogie boarding, you're surfing, you're doing whatever you're doing in the ocean, you're just playing around, and pretty soon you look up and you're like, where's our tent? You know, we're like, oh, we're a half mile down the beach. That's how this works. You know, oftentimes when we lean into something, we take a step in that direction. And the, and the one step we take doesn't kind of seem that significant, you know? And then we get comfortable at that step, and then we think, okay, well, the next step now seems logical too. The problem is, what happens if you take six, seven steps? Maybe the eventual destination becomes a real problem. That's what happens with this you-do-you mindset. Can I walk you through kind of the the journey that we go on when we do this? Um, I'll try not to be too preachy as I do it. But as I read you through it, as I read you this kind of list, these seven steps along the journey, I'd love for you to just ponder how you have seen those played out. Not in your life, I'm sure. None of you are this way. But in the, don't elbow anybody, but the people around you, the world around you, you're, you're going to see it everywhere. Here's the first step of expressive individualism. The highest good is individual freedom and happiness, self-definition and self-expression. Again, not a big step, right? I mean, if, if the best thing you can do is you do you, just don't hurt anybody else, follow your heart, then of course the first step is, you know, expressing that through individual freedom, finding happiness and self-definition and self-expression as the highest good, thinking of that as the goal. Again, not a big deal. What's the big deal, right? But it's the first step in a journey that then leads to a logical next step, which is this, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Now, some of those are buzzwords you've probably heard a lot about, but it's a part of the path of individualism. The minute we begin to lean into the you-do-you mindset, it takes us down a path, and the second stop on the journey is that. We, we, We begin to reshape things that work against our definitions. We begin to deconstruct things, which isn't always bad, but it can lead to some bad things. We, we feel like we have to destroy anything that's getting in the way of my individual freedom, my ability to choose, to do what I want to do, with who I want, when I want. That, that step leads to another one, and it gets a little bit more complicated. The next step is the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. If this is true, 
as we all begin to become more kind of actualized, as we begin to, to become more individualistic and understand our own truths more and more, right, then the world is going to get better. Because we're all going to be doing that, raising the tide for everyone. The more we do that, the collective world gets better. The fourth stop on the journey, the primary social ethic, here's a word, is tolerance. The primary social ethic in an individualistic society is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. There's a whole sermon on that that we're not going to do right now. Number five. It leads to us believing that humans are inherently good. Now, just for a second. Do you have children, anybody? Okay, I have four kids, right? There is nothing better than a toddler to teach you that humans are not inherently good. <laughs> They're just not. Like, I never once, never once had to teach my toddler to lie. Not once, you know? Like, they come toddling into the living room with cookie all over their face, and they weren't supposed to have it. Did you eat a cookie? No. And it's cookie all over them, right? Of course they ate the cookie. Never once did I say, now listen, if you lie, you can get away with stuff and you can get what you want and not be punished, you know? Let's practice, you know, like we never do that. <laughs> like you never taught your kid to do that. Like you never dropped your kid off at church or at a preschool or at, you know, a school as a little kid and said, hey, listen, if somebody has a toy you want, you go take it. Just take it. Might makes right. If you're, I mean, work out a little, do some bench presses, but like, go take the toy. Like, you never had to teach your kid that, did you? You know why? Because humans aren't inherently good. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But if you follow the path of expressive individualism, it leads to that as a stop on the journey. It has to be true if expressive individualism is going to be true. Because if humans are inherently not good, and you can follow your heart... Where does that lead? You see where that problem is, right? Unfortunately, that isn't the last stop on the path. There's two more. Number six, this gets dangerous. If you continue down the path, the next thing that happens is that large-scale structures and institutions, can you, just for a second, can you think of some of those things really quick? Can you think of some large-scale structures like a church, institutions? Can you think of some things that maybe fit in that category? Large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best, even without any founded reason, and they're evil at worst. There's zero trust for organized anything. There's zero trust for a collective thought, because collective thought is an individualist true. So we are suspicious of anything that's structured, and we assume the worst from the beginning. And here's the last step on the path. Forms of external authority are rejected. And personal authenticity is lauded. Now, just a really quick question. Does that seem like anything you've seen before? D does that remind you? Again, don't look at anybody or elbow, but does it remind you of people you know? Can I ask a harder question? D does it remind you of something you have felt? I mean, <laughs> in this season, in this time, you know, we, 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 we say a lot, like, this is the most divisive time in our country, to which I'm like, maybe, but the Civil War seemed pretty divisive too, so I'm not sure. But it's incredibly divisive. Everybody has an opinion, and everybody's right. And, and weirdly, everybody's a virologist all of a sudden. I don't know, it's weird. Like, we all have PhDs in biology. I don't know. But it's like everyone knows what's right for them. Now, do, don't answer this out loud. 
do you really think we all know what's right for us? Of course we don't. Of course we don't. Our lives prove that we don't because we have all made terrible decisions following our heart. We have all had, I mean, almost every one of your regrets wasn't well thought through. But you did you, boo. <laughs> and it led to a mistake. It led to a problem. And if you follow it all the way, it leads to this path where external authority is the problem. That's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time is that word authority. That word authority is a real issue. Again, if, if, if you're, you know, not a Jesus follower, you're going to appreciate this. If you are a Jesus follower, this word authority is centric to our belief system. Authority is a big deal in Christianity. But if we follow expressive individualism, we, we begin to jettison it. And what do you think we do when it comes to our faith? It just becomes a part of the things that we want to leave behind. See, authority is really the issue. And that's actually where Mary and Martha are at right now. If we go back to that story, Mary and Martha are having an expressive individualism moment with Jesus. Remember, Mary is sitting at the feet. Martha is working hard. And she thinks that Mary should be doing what she's doing. So she goes to Jesus to complain about it. Let's jump back into the story because I want you to see how Jesus actually responded. She came to him and asked, Martha does, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And here's what Jesus actually said to her. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Listen to this. Mary has chosen what is, and what's that word? Better. Mary has chosen what is better, and I'm not going to take it away from her. Now, just a quick second. The primary point of the story, and every time I ever heard it taught, right, the primary point of the story is how easily it is to be distracted by the things of the world that pulls us away from the things of God. That's the primary point of the story, and I think that's an important point. The world around you will constantly distract you from the things that matter the most, your relationship with Jesus. But I think there's another point to the story. And it's around that word, better. Mary has chosen better. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like Jesus doesn't think you do you is the right thing to do. Like in this moment, I mean, at least according to Jesus, at least according to Jesus, you do you isn't always the best thing to do. At least according to Jesus. This isn't me, okay? According to Jesus, you, you doing you, you following your heart, you living out your truth might not always be the best thing for you to do. Now, that should rub you the wrong way a little bit. Because honestly, who made Jesus the boss of Mary and Martha? Like, who anointed him the boss? Or if we use Martha's word, who made Jesus the Lord of Mary and Martha? Do you remember that's how she addressed Jesus? I mean, they're good friends. I mean, they're tight but when she came to him, she didn't say, hey, dude. She said, Lord. She came and said, Lord. That word Lord is a big deal. Verse 1040. She came to him and said, Lord. You know what Lord means? Lord means authority. Lord means in charge. 
If you have a Lord in your life, they are the ruler of your life. If you have a Lord in your life, they are in charge of you. They're in charge of every aspect of what you do. If you want to jump, you ask the Lord before, and then you ask him how high. If you want to go for a drive, you don't just get in the car. You don't do you. If you have a Lord over your life, they are the authority in your life. Now again, where does the expressive individualism lead us? Not that direction, right? This is, I think, one of the biggest problems in culture right now when it comes to Christianity. I think one of the biggest problems is that we don't really want Jesus to be our Lord. Like we see Jesus as a person with authority, but we don't really want him to be our authority. Because if he becomes our authority, we might have to change some things. We might have to do some things differently. We actually just want to like Jesus, don't we? But, but liking Jesus, liking Jesus makes him our life coach. Following Jesus makes him our Lord. They're very different. Liking Jesus makes him our life coach. And let's just be honest for a minute. I mean, we're all in church. God's watching, right? He's always watching, by the way. I don't know if you know that. But <laughs> let's be honest, at least with ourselves right now. Isn't that what we want Jesus to be? We want him to be our therapist, our buddy, our friend, our get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, when things are bad, you know what we want? We want just enough Jesus for when we need Jesus. That's what we want. I don't want him involved over there, you know, just right here. You know, Jesus, I'm going to spring break. You stay here. I'll be back, and trust me, I'm going to need some cleaning off when I get back, you know. You know, Jesus, I'm going to Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas? You know, Jesus, you're not going to like it at all, you know. They call it Sin City, Jesus, like, you died for it. You're not going to like it, you know. That's how we treat Jesus, right? Like, just give me enough for the moment I need you, but then that's it. Don't get too involved. I mean, don't get involved in my dating life. Are you kidding me? Don't get involved in my morality. Definitely don't get involved in my finances, unless I don't have any. Then I want you super involved. <laughs> like, that's how we treat Jesus, isn't it? I mean, think about how problematic that is. And, and when it comes to authority, it creates some real problems. And it really creates some strife in our heart if we, if we just pause for a minute. Because we really do want autonomy. But the reason we want autonomy is because we think it leads to happiness. That's why we resist it. Like we, we resist authority because we think it's the way to experience autonomy. We resist authority because we think it's the path to autonomy. And logically that kind of makes sense. But autonomy is at odds with God's authority. And we can't have both. We're either going to live for ourselves or we're going to live for Christ. You really don't get to do both. You get to do one or the other. And I actually think it's a misnomer. I think it's a mistake if we begin to think that if, if giving our life, giving our heart, giving all of us to Jesus means we're going to lose ourselves, it couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, maybe you know this, the best way to find yourself is to give yourself to him. And you know why? Because who knows you better? Who knows you better, you or God? Who knows you better than the one who made you and knows you, unconditionally loves you, saved you, and now dwells inside of you? Who knows you better than Jesus? Who loves you more than your heavenly father? Who wants you to experience life to the full more than you? He does. And he knows how to get there. He knows how to lead you there. You don't lose yourself when you follow Jesus. You gain everything. 
including yourself. But to do so, you have to do it under authority, and that's a problem, isn't it? You know what I have found to be true? I've been working in ministry for about 15 years. I've had a lot of great and a lot of terrible conversations with people in those 15 years. You know, as a pastor, people just tell you stuff all the time, you know? Like you're just at, you know, a, a restaurant and people just start spilling their life story. I mean, it's, it's very, it's an honor that people treat us and, 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 and trust us that way. And I hear story after story after story. And nobody calls it this, but this is what it is, of expressive individualism. People wanting to find happiness through self-discovery and it breaks my heart every time. And the reason they're on the path is because the world has convinced them it's the best way to go. I can't convince you to go the other way, but I want to convince you to at least think about the other way. Here's what I have found to be true. The best thing that you can do is to give Jesus authority over you. It is the best thing that you can do. Following Jesus makes life better and it makes you better at life. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't mean you avoid all the hardship. It doesn't mean the diagnosis always go your way but it does mean you have a new way to think through it, a new way to live through life, a new way to love others, a new way to feel loved, a new way to experience joy and happiness, and a new way to experience the thing I think we're actually after anyway, peace, in every circumstance. See, what's so interesting to me about expressive individualism is how it works directly against the gospel. You know what the gospel is? The, the gospel is just the good news of Jesus. But, but the good news of Jesus sounds individualism in a way, but it's not. Because the good news also has bad news. You can't have good news without some bad news. And that's the truth of the gospel. I mean, let me, I just wrote down exactly, as quickly as I could, exactly what the gospel is. And it does start with some bad news. Here's the bad news. You have sinned against God. You have rebelled against God. You know why? Because you're human, and that's what we do when we resist authority. Listen, the very first thing that we did as humans in the Garden of Eden is resist authority. I mean, it's been around since the beginning. It's baked into our DNA to resist authority. And so the very first thing we ever did was rebel. But God loves you so much. Do you know this? God loves you so much that he wasn't going to allow your rebellion to keep you separated from him. If you have kids, you understand this. I have four kids. They're really great kids. I'm so blessed with, with my children. But they haven't always been awesome. They've stolen cookies. They've lied. They've punched each other in the face, right? Now, if you're a parent, let me just ask you. And you know what? Part of our problem with God is sometimes we have really crappy parents. And we assume, we assume that maybe they represent God. They don't. Let's assume you're all wonderful parents. What would a perfect father, a perfect mother do when their child rebels? I have a feeling you'd fight for the relationship, wouldn't you? Like there may be consequences for the behavior, but you wouldn't allow the consequence to be a severing of the relationship. That's how God loves you. He loves you so much, he doesn't want your relationship to be severed. But also there was a consequence for the rebellion, and somebody had to pay the consequence. So you know who did that? Jesus. That's the good news, is that even though you severed the relationship, God wanted to fix it. But somebody had to pay the price, and he didn't want it to be you. 
So he let his son come to earth, God in a bod, walk around on earth, fully God and fully man and die for you. And then three days later, he came back to life to prove that spiritually we do the same thing. That's the gospel, it's the good news. But it's baked into authority. You see, if you don't allow God to be an authority, if you don't allow him to lead you as Lord, you don't need him because you just can do you. But that's not the gospel. And the minute we start going down the path of individualism, we're walking away from the path of faith. So here's what I want you to think you to do. Here's what I want you to think about for a second. Where in your life, where in your life have you found it incredibly difficult to call Jesus Lord? Now, I know most of you are like, most of my life, but not all, right? There's an area. There's true for me, too. There's areas in my life. It's just harder to submit, to surrender. What what is that area for you? I'm not going to list them. You know what they are. I don't even have to tell you. You know what that area is. I mean, immediately you know it, and you're like, dang it, why'd I come to church today? But that's okay, you're here. Like, what is it? What is that space? And the real challenge is to decide what you're gonna do with it. Are are, are you gonna continue to live for yourself, continue to follow your heart, continue to do what you think is best, because your story is unique, no one else is like you. And God's like, oh my gosh, I've seen it all. Just give me authority. And if you continue to look around the world, continue to look around culture, Culture is going to keep reminding you to do you, to follow your heart, to turn inward. And turning inward seems like the right thing to do. In fact, the world says we should turn inward. But the gospel says to look upward. The world's going to constantly remind you to look inward. The gospel's going to challenge you to look upward. And I think that's a challenge worth considering. So I'm gonna pray for us and uh, we're gonna sing a song as we end. And as we just do, I, I'd love for you just to think about what area of your life you're struggling to follow. What area of your life are you struggling to truly see God, not as a life coach, but as your Lord? And I just want you to imagine what might happen if you decided to let go of that. I mean, I can't force you to do it. Nobody can force you to do it. And God isn't gonna force you to either. He's gonna let you choose it. But I want you to imagine what might happen on the other side of that choice. My guess, my guess is it's worth the choice. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, man, thank you so much for being the kind of God that loves me so much that I can trust you to be my Lord, that you always have my best interest in mind. There is never a moment, Father, there is never a moment that you are doing anything to harm me. And even though when I I see your commands and I see your guidelines and your boundaries and I hear from you and I know what I'm supposed to do, that Holy Spirit thing in me, and I just don't want to do it, I just pray that you give all of us the wisdom to know what to do, but even more, the courage to allow you to be our Lord. And in doing so, discover true joy and peace and everything you want us to have on this side of eternity, Father. We love you, Jesus, so much. Thank you for dying for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.